0: In the 17th century, a plague swept through a colonial town in Massachusetts and infected the population with fear and hysteria. Hundreds were accused of selling their souls to Satan, and both the church and secular authorities participated in obscene torture and murder to rid their town of some of the most evil monsters in history, witches. This is the history behind the crime. Hello all my fellow ghouls and goblins, welcome back to the History Behind the Crime. I'm your host, Aaron Lasley, here to present another creepy tale of crime and history. Halloween is right around the corner, and my weekends have already been full of scary movies and creepy research. I am such a nerd. I try not to do both at the same time. I think it's interesting that I can watch a horror movie and go to sleep and I'm just fine. But when I've been researching demons for a few hours, (laughs) everything goes to shit. When I turn off the lights, suddenly that, you know, that crumpled blanket in the recliner in my room is a dead man or a demon. So either I have an overactive imagination or I need to talk to my therapist about some meds. Or maybe there really is something there. Okay. Anyways. Okay. Creepy. Uh have even started the episode and I'm already like getting myself creeped out. Uh, anywho, this week I wanted to tell you about a really old crime that involves the murder of 19 people in a not so small sleepy town uh, in the colony of... Of Salem in Massachusetts uh, in 1692 yes this week we're gonna talk about the Salem witch trials and how a whole town lost their freaking minds like mass panic in preparation for the podcast I pulled out an old college paper I wrote about the subject Oh my God, it was so badly written and researched. I actually groaned at embarrassment and wondered how I managed to make an A on it. So apparently either my professor was really tired when he read it or he didn't have high standards for his students. I tucked that back away and instead relied on Stacy Schiff's book, The Witches, Salem 1692, A History, which I accidentally bought two copies at two different used bookstores. Same book, different cover art. Uh, I also used Tracy Borman's book, Witches, a tale of sorcery, scandal, and seduction. And Conjuring the Sex Positive, Witches, Sluts, Feminists by Kristen J. I believe you pronounced her last name, Soleil, Uh, which that was a delicious read. Uh, I didn't mean to, but I also stumbled on fellow historian Lucy Worsley's documentary, Lucy Worsley Investigates the Witch Hunts. Okay, you know, I say fellow historian, but I am so not in the same league as her. She is a god in the history world. Intelligent, expert in English and European history, and just cute as a button. Her documentaries are always entertaining to watch um, because she's also very talented and witty. Uh, A lot of her documentaries have been popping up on PBS and I watch them on the PBS app and Amazon. And obviously every time I mention Amazon, I think they should really like get me a kickback or something. Witches. They are the staple of our Halloween movies. Um, from the three child killers in Hocus Pocus to the romantic yet slutty aunts and nieces team in Practical Magic, which is one of my favorite movies. Witch Halloween costumes range from the the cute kitty garb to the slutty witch to the old hag. I've lost count of all the times I've dressed as a witch for Halloween, and my office has a witch theme right now. Uh, During this time of the year, witches are... Everywhere, and most of us love it. Aside from that one chick a few years ago who was offended by my decorations, not because she thought they were evil or something, but because she said I was giving witches a bad name. I still don't know what she was talking about, but the next year I bought more witch-themed decorations just to piss her off. But I digress. In the 21st century, there are generally three kinds of witches. Witches. The stereotypical Halloween witch, the new age witch or Wiccan, or that one hag you know but you call her a witch when you're in mixed company? Yeah. I was curious and looked up witch in the dictionary and found the following. One definition says a witch, normally a woman, is someone who is credited with having malignant supernatural powers, or a woman who is believed to practice unusual to practice usually black magic, often with the aid of a devil or familiar. I thought those were a bit harsh. Uh, The third one was a bit more forgiving. A practitioner of witchcraft, especially in adherence with a neo-pagan tradition or religion. And that was a little better. So this being also a history podcast, where did witches originate? Pretty much almost every culture has a history of witches. Close your eyes, pick a culture, and you're probably going to find a witch. Whether that witch is good or bad will depend on the culture. Today, we're going to concentrate on early American colonial and European cultures because that's where the crime took place and that's where the history is set witches make their first appearance in western history in guess what the bible uh, specifically in first samuel when king Saul uh sought out a witch to summon the spirit of the prophet samuel to help him defeat an enemy army well the witch succeeded in summoning samuel where the prophet pretty much told saul you idiot now tomorrow both you and your sons will die king saul's Sons did die the next day and Saul offed himself. So from here on in, witches got a bad rep. Oh yeah, Exodus said not to suffer a witch to live. So there's that too. And that's where we run into a lot of problems later on. From biblical times to more modern times, people blamed the existence of witches for whatever ailed them. If you had a cow die, It was a witch. Couldn't conceive a child? A witch probably put a spell on you. Your husband cheated on you? The other woman was probably a witch who used magic to make him go astray. Your neighbor has a knowledge of medicinal herbs that helped heal someone you don't like? Witch. Opinionated woman? Witch. And from biblical times to modern times, it was deemed okay to kill a witch. You were doing God's will. However, and this is interesting, in the really early Middle Ages, I'm talking before 1000 AD, the Catholic Church pretty much told people hunting down witches to stop because witchcraft simply did not exist. It was actually illegal in many European kingdoms to put a, quote, witch to death. There were actually priests and monks traveling around Europe trying to dispel superstitious nonsense and save innocent people accused of being witches. Kind of ironic, huh? This was mainly pushed because the church was trying to convert as many people as possible and, quote, witchcraft was seen as more pagan than evil because so-called witches during this time were those who tried to find magic within nature. Kind of like the Druids. Those ideas didn't really work for the church, so they had to dissuade people that witchcraft and magic didn't exist. Now, later on in the Middle Ages, between 1000 to 1500 AD, some witches were put to death, but not because they were found guilty of witchcraft, but because they were found guilty of heresy, which was a huge capital crime back in the day. It was more serious than so-called witchcraft. The most famous case of this would have been Joan of Arc. Yeah, she was tried for heresy and accused of being witch by the English. Joan was found guilty of heresy because she said that she communicated with God and gasp, wore men's clothing and she was burned at the stake. Here's the thing. She was executed for heresy, not for witchcraft. Of course The entire thing was politically motivated, and no one really believed she was a witch. Oddly enough, if Joan had been a man captured by the English, he just would have had his head chopped off. But the English had to put on a good show because Joan was a woman, and chopping off a woman's head at that time was just in poor taste. Unless, of course, you were Anne Boleyn, then you were screwed either way. For most of the Middle Ages, witch hunts and executions were pretty much frowned upon until a sexually repressed priest ruined it and wrote a book that condemned tens of thousands of people to death. Malaeus Maleficarum, also known as the Hammer of the Witches, This brilliant piece of shit is where we get all the stereotypical ideas of what a witch is, how to identify a witch, and how to kill a witch. It's one of the most women-hating books of all time, all because some priest couldn't get laid. Okay, let me back up. In Europe during the 16th century, an interesting thing called the Reformation was going on. New Protestant religions were springing up, and the Catholic Church pretty much felt threatened by this. Suddenly, priests weren't traveling Europe trying to stop people from hunting witches. They were encouraging people to hunt down heretics and witches, so those who turned against the church could be tried and either be brought back into the fold, or they could burn. Did you guys know, side note, Did you guys know that the people condemned to be burnt to the stake for crimes other than heresy or witchcraft had to be strangled first? Just a little fun fact. Okay. So you have all these people turning away from Rome and turning towards some of these new fancy dancy ideas like reading the Bible in your own language, not in Latin and getting baptized as an adult and not as a baby. This hacked off Rome so much that priests and friars were sent out to conduct inquisitions. Yeah, it didn't just happen in Spain. And they were also tasked with finding, you know, the lost sheep. One priest took this a little bit too far when he was personally insulted by a woman in public. This jackass, Henrik Kramer, was the premier incel. He was so damned offended that a married woman spurned his advances that he sat down and wrote a whole book about how women formed alliances with Satan to gain powers and they were more easily seduced than men by Satan because women were more sexual than men. You can tell a woman is a witch because she's outspoken and intelligent and has sexual liaisons outside the marriage bed. Other things had to be added in, of course, like riding around on brooms and sacrificing babies to Satan, and a whole other load of nonsense. Before the 1480s, when the book was released, a person accused of witchcraft could escape death by recanting their witchy ways. But after Malaeus Maleficarum, the only sure-fire way to get rid of a witch was through execution. Only after torture, of course. The Pope was so shocked by Malaeus Maleficarum and that there was such evilness out there that he signed a papal bull justifying the hunting down and execution of witches. Independent women and the men who stood up for them were screwed. Doubly so when secular authorities in both Catholic and Protestant countries started to pass laws against witchcraft. Suddenly, witchcraft wasn't seen as a throwback to pagan beliefs and the belief in the supernatural healing and the like, but as a pact with the devil to gain evil favors and power. The witch crisis spread throughout Europe and made its way into England. Well, none of us would be shocked to learn that Henry VIII created laws against witchcraft because, you know, he was just that kind of guy, it may shock you to learn that Elizabeth I did as well. My theory is she did it for two reasons. The first being, while more people in England embraced the Protestant faith, they were also concerned with the lack of priests um, needed to keep evil at bay. Many Protestant faiths encouraged a one-on-one relationship with God, so priests became irrelevant, which meant it was up to the people to identify evil and witches, and they saw witches everywhere. The second being was that a lot of people did not want to see Elizabeth on the throne, and would stop at nothing to see her dead. This even meant using sorcery to do it. Elizabeth really didn't like this, so anyone practicing anything remotely resembling witchcraft could be tried and executed. Okay, I know it's fiction, but the second book and also the second TV season of The Discovery of Witches kind of goes into this a bit. It's one of my guilty pleasures. Witches and vampires. Yum. Okay. But the biggest player... In the tale of witchcraft in England was James VI of Scotland, who later became James I of England. You know, He was Mary, Queen of Scots' son, and Elizabeth I's heir. The story starts in 1589 with one of the most romantic royal stories in Scottish history. James is on the throne of Scotland, and it's decided he really needs to marry someone. The 14-year-old Anne of Denmark is chosen, and in the fall of 1589, they're married by proxy, which was a normal practice at this time. It was a a wedding ceremony where someone else would stand in for the groom, or sometimes the bride. Uh, It was a lawful ceremony until the bride and groom could actually, you know, get hitched in person. Anne and her small court set sail for Scotland, but some massive storms deserted them in Norway. James would not have this, and gathered his men and ships and set sail through these horrific storms to rescue his young bride. James and Anne met in Oslo, where they were married, visited Denmark, and sailed back to Scotland to live happily ever after. For about a year, and after that, they really couldn't stand each other. This was a Charles and Diana kind of marriage, not a Will and Kate marriage. So where do witches come into the story? Nah. Okay. Before James ever hooked up with Anne, he was interested in the occult, and it's funny when royals have an interest in the cults. It's a, it's you know, it's just a hobby. But when commoners have an interest in um in the occult, they're in league with Satan. Go figure. By this time in Denmark, witch fever was stupid crazy. And James took an interest in the subject of witchcraft while he was in Copenhagen on his honeymoon. Oh, so romantic. After James and Anne left, rumors started spreading throughout Copenhagen that witches were responsible for the storms that beset the royal couple. Apparently, on Halloween night, a coven got together to summon demons to take out the ships. How did this rumor start? Long story, really short. A man insulted a woman and then accused her of witchcraft. Under interrogation, most likely torture. A woman gave up the names of other women said to be witches. By the end of the, quote, investigation and the, quote, trials, two women were burned at the stake. This got back to James in Scotland, and he thought, well, shit, There's probably witches here, too, that want to do, you know, me harm. And that's how witch fever spread across Scotland and shortly after England. It's the same old story. A woman is suspected of witchcraft. She's severely tortured and confesses that not only is she in league with the devil, but then gives up the names of other women. One of these women was named Agnes Sampson, who was highly respected in her community. Agnes denied being a witch, but confessed after severely being tortured. She admitted directly to James himself that she and other witches summoned the storms in hopes of killing King James and Queen Anne. Agnes was strangled and burnt at the stake for her so-called crimes. This kicked off the North Berwick Trials, where hundreds of people were implicated including nobles. A few years later, James published a study called Demonology, uh, which was a scholarly study on witches. This inspired others to study and hunt down witches as well. By the mid-1600s, the study of witches was so advanced that there were actually categories of witches, After the Bell War Trials, which was a witch hunt in England in the early 17th century, where a girl as young as five was accused of being a witch and is definitely worth reading Tracy Borman's book to learn more about. Anyways, after the Bell War Trials, a pamphlet was published that categorized different witches. And I'm going to butcher a lot of this because my Latin is really bad. So a... So a python is, say, uh, dealt with artificial charms. Necromancers, obviously, exhumed human corpses and used them to tell the future. Ventriloquies spoke with hollow voices as if they were possessed by the devil. Geomanticies conversed with spirits and used incantations. And benefices used poison to either cure or kill. So a witch was not just a witch. They all had different special powers. You can imagine with more literature coming out about witches, the more witch fever spread, and it did. Between the start of the witch hysteria starting in the 15th century and ending approximately around the middle of the 18th century, around 50,000 people in Europe, predominantly women, were murdered for being accused witches. In Scotland, the population in the 17th century was around a million people. More than 2,000 of them were accused of witchcraft. During this time, not only was there witch hysteria, but it was also the beginning of English colonialism. And where people went, their beliefs and superstitions went with them. And that's how we got witches in the new world. Before we get into that history, let's talk about Salem in the year of our Lord, 1692, 200 years after Columbus got lost. Salem was originally settled, not by white people, but by Native Americans around 10,000 years ago. The Namkiag people made the area of Salem their home and were quite content there until they came in contact with Europeans in the early 1600s. And with that contact brought smallpox epidemics, which wiped out a large swath of the population, leaving the area pretty easy pickings for European fishermen to settle in 1626. The Massachusetts Bay Colony would later pay the Namkiak people about 20 pounds for the land, which was a total ripoff. Settlers in Salem made a living from farming, fishing, various small shops, and the ever-lucrative triangle trade. Yep, the people from Salem shipped raw materials out. Those materials were processed in England, where they were then shipped to Africa, and slaves would be sent to the New World. Salem was better at the triangle trade than Boston was. So already, Salem is not off to a great start in terms of history. First, killing off the Native Americans, then importing slaves, and then, well, we'll get to that in a moment. Many of us learned from our early history classes, a vast majority of people in the Massachusetts colony were of a Protestant faith, predominantly Puritan. What is the Puritan faith, you might ask? Think of your average Protestant faith and take all the fun out of it. No joy in receiving God's salvation or finding redemption through God's forgiveness. Nope. For Puritans, you were either born elected to go to heaven or predestined to go to hell. So you better spend all your time praying you were going to heaven. Which, after that little lesson, you can imagine why a lot of them drank. They were also extraordinarily strict when it came to following rules or laws because many of them were based on the Bible. No working on the Sabbath, no adultery. I think we all remember the Scarlet Letter. No charging interest on loans and so on and so on. Failure to obey these laws could bring a whole range of punishments from a few days in the stocks, branding, exile, or even death. Yeah, if you were found out to be a a papist, which is another word for Catholic, you could be executed for heresy. Despite what you may have been taught in grade school, the colonies were not founded on the concept of religious freedom. Maybe freedom from the Church of England, but not religious freedom for all. You were either Puritan in Massachusetts, or you found somewhere else to exist. However... In 1689, Salem and other towns in the Massachusetts colony experienced an influx of refugees fleeing from the devastation of King William's War, a skirmish between the French and English, mainly in Canada, but spilled over into parts of upstate New York as well. The arrival of refugees caused a strain on the resources and, (laughs) much like today, people didn't like outsiders taking their jobs. So imagine the setting, an up-and-coming frontier town, because in 1692, all the American colonies were roughly considered the frontier, days spent doing hard labor just to survive, constantly praying and being paranoid about whether or not you're going to heaven, and following a strict set of laws to ensure you don't incur God's wrath. There was also a recent outbreak of smallpox, and a constant fear of Native Americans attacking. On top of that, the stress on resources started to make people a bit cranky, and different families started to turn on each other. Everyone was giving everyone the side eye. And sooner or later, drama was about to happen. What makes things worse is that, like many people back in Europe, the Puritans were also a superstitious lot. If your crops failed, it was either God's punishment or the doing of the devil. If you suffered from what we know today as epilepsy, you were possessed by the devil. Your dog was acting a little bit funny. It was the devil's work. And the devil's favorite soldier was a witch. Now, the witchy events that took place in Salem were not the first witch trials in the American colonies. Connecticut took the prize a few decades before. Between 1640 and 1692, Connecticut saw 35 witch trials where 11 people were were hanged for being a witch. This was also where history saw the use of Witch Studies and Malaeus Maleficarum to identify, test, and torture witches. I'm talking drowning people in the water to see if they float and checking the accused body for the extra nipple or the devil's mark. But we're here for Salem and the murder of 19 people. How did all this start? with three little girls who probably needed to be grounded for a month or sent to military school. One evening in January 1692, Reverend Samuel Parris' nine-year-old daughter Elizabeth and his 11-year-old niece Abigail Williams threw what today we would call a hissy fit or temper tantrum. They were throwing things, screaming, contorting themselves into strange positions and talking gibberish. Rather than giving the girls a good talking to or sending them to bed without their supper, the good reverend, which not a lot of people in town liked, called up one of the doctors who rushed over and diagnosed the girls as being bewitched rather than being spoiled little brats. Soon after, another young girl who wanted attention, 11-year-old Ann Putman also exhibited signs of bewitchment, all three girls said they felt like they were being pricked by needles, which was a common symptom of being cursed by a witch. Two town magistrates, Jonathan Corwin and John Hawthorne, pressed the girls pretty hard about who they suspected could be behind the curses. The three girls fingered to Tuba, the Paris's Caribbean slave, Sarah Good, a homeless beggar, and Sarah Osborne, an elderly, impoverished woman. Three women no one really cared for and made excellent scapegoats for the girls' extreme temper tantrums. The three women were arrested in late February and, the in- and were interrogated pretty harshly. Both Good and Osborne maintained their innocence, but Tituba gave up the Goods, Likely because, as a slave, she knew she wouldn't be granted the same rights as Good and Osborne, and decided to play informant instead. She confessed that a dark figure came to her and asked her to sign his book. She said she did and saw the, other, and saw the names of other witches hell-bent on destroying the Puritans. That's when all hell broke loose. Accusations began to fly around Salem, and several people were accused of being a witch. Not only were the not-so-liked and more promiscuous women accused, but good church-going women like Martha Corey, who was a loyal member of the church, and innocent children such as Sarah Good's four-year-old daughter, Dorothy, who obviously couldn't mount a defense for herself. Magistrates considered her childish gibber a confession that her mother was a witch. It wasn't just women who were accused, but men as well, including men of God. Anyone suspected of witchcraft were examined for the devil's mark, which could be anything from a mole to birthmark. While the examination doesn't sound as extreme as, you know, the water tests, it's still akin to sexual assault. Being stripped down in a room of men, fondled and groped until evidence was found that you had the mark of the devil. It was humiliating at best. Dozens of people within and around Salem were interrogated and a court was set up to try the accused. But the accused were so afraid for their lives that they confessed and gave up the names of of others as well. The sheer number of accused quickly overwhelmed the Salem justice system that the colonial governor had to set up special courts to try all these cases coming out of three counties. By the end of May, 62 people were in jail awaiting trial for witchcraft. Bridget Bishop, a woman known for her gossip and getting really friendly with the male population, was the first to be tried in the new court. She maintained her innocence, but the court found her guilty of witchcraft and on June 10th was the first to hang. No one in Salem was actually burnt at the stake. That was just a little bit too Catholic for the Puritans. Cotton Mather, a rather famous Puritan clergyman with a scientific streak, wrote to the judges of the court and pleaded caution. He said all the right things about being on God's side, and yeah, we need to be careful about these witches, but asked the court to calm the F down and use some logic. Many of these people were innocent, but that didn't sway the court. In July, Sarah Good, Elizabeth Howell, Susanna Martin, Sarah Wilds, and Rebecca Nurse stood before the judges and pleaded their innocence. They were all found guilty and hanged. In August, Martha Carrier, George Jacob Sr., George Burroughs, John Willard, and John Proctor were all found guilty of witchcraft and hanged. Another woman, Elizabeth Proctor, had been found guilty as well, but she was granted a stay of execution because she was pregnant. Eight more people were convicted and executed in September. One man, Giles Corey, Martha Corey's husband, refused to even make a plea in court. He suffered a fate worse than hanging. He was pressed to death. What's that? It's a throwback to medieval torture. There are several ways to press someone, but two of the more popular ways include a flat board placed on a prone subject's chest. In the standard practice, Rocks or other heavy objects are placed on the board until the victim confesses or dies. Another way is to place a large stone under the victim's back and then press them until the victim confesses, their back breaks, or they die. Though I don't know which technique Corey's torturers used, he died from being pressed. As October rolled around, the more logical people in Massachusetts really started to make their voices heard as the accusations started to get really crazy. Yeah, even more crazy than they already were. Even Cotton Mather's father, the esteemed Increase Mather, who was also a clergyman and the dean of Harvard University, pleaded for common sense and said, quote, it were better than 10 suspected witches should escape than one innocent person be condemned. And I think we can all conclude now they were all innocent. Finally, on 29 October, the colonial governor did away with the courts. Why? The appeals from the Mathers and others could have finally swayed them. Or maybe it was because... His own wife was being accused of being a witch. Yeah, irony is a bitch. By May of the next year, he pardoned all those still held in jail for witchcraft, which was, you know, a little bit too late because over 200 people had been accused of witchcraft. 19 people were hanged, two dogs were executed, one man was pressed to death, and more people died in jail waiting for their own trial none of these victims ever really got justice sure there was a colonial investigation the trials were declared illegal a day of fasting was declared years later so those involved could think on their sins and the heirs of those accused got 600 pounds in restitution which was actually a good chunk of change but none of the judges or accusers were tried for their part in this tragedy Witch trials would continue throughout the colonies and then the United States until 1878. 1878, when the last witch trial was considered to happen, in none other than Salem, Massachusetts. In 1957, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts apologized for the events that took place in Salem in 1692. 1692 about 50 years before the Vatican, apologized for the Inquisition and witch hunts. One of the many unfortunate things about both the European witch hunts and the American colonial witch hunts is that they were very much sexist. It was mainly women who did not fit the traditional role of the religious and obedient wife, daughter, or mother who were brought up on charges of witchcraft and executed for it. Horrible devices were created to silence these women and the legacy of Malayas maleficarum and other witchcraft propaganda continue to try to silence outspoken women today. I take great satisfaction that more women today are speaking up and speaking out from tearing down and trashing female stereotypes to getting loud with the Me Too movement. I really like what Kristen J. Soleil had to say in the introduction of her book, Witches, Sluts, Feminists. Like many millennial women, I see a reclamation of female power in the witch, slut, and feminist identities. Each of these contested words conjure and counter torturous history of misogyny, and each in its own way can be emblematic of women overcoming oppression. So here's to all those sexy and slutty witches prancing around this Halloween. You go get yours, girl. You go get yours. Finally, I want to give y'all some true crime updates and news. In one of the bonus episodes, I briefly told you about the murder of Kristen Smart and how Chris Lampert's podcast, Your Own Backyard, led to the arrest of Paul Flores. I am happy to announce on October 18th, a jury convicted Flores for Kristen's murder, and he will face sentencing in December. He faces 25 years to life. Let's hope that asswipe gets life. This one really got me because it reminded me of the uh, Grim Sleeper investigation, which was featured a few episodes ago. About a month ago, Bishop Tony Caldwell in Kansas City, Missouri, put out a video calling attention to at least four missing black women in the neighborhood who may have also been sex workers. Kansas City police got so many calls about the video that the police had to put out a statement saying the accusations were unfounded. There were no reports of missing women in that neighborhood. Fast forward to October 7th, when a 22-year-old black woman escaped from a Kansas City house where she said she had been held captive and repeatedly raped for approximately a month. The police, thank God, arrested the offender, 39-year-old Timothy M. Hazlitt Jr., and charged him with kidnapping, rape, and assault. Here's where it gets scarier. The victim claimed there had been other women locked away with her. Women who did not make it. As you can imagine, the black community is up in arms that the Kansas City Police are not taking their claims seriously and care little for the black sex workers in these neighborhoods. Apparently, many residents in these neighborhoods have come forward with missing female family members. They had tried to make missing persons reports with the police, but they were either rebuffed for one reason or another. And the reports were never taken down. This is a developing story, and I am sure more will come out later. You can rest assured. I will be keeping my eye on this one. Finally, just wanted to know what the hell is going on in Oklahoma. On October 10th, the remains of four men were discovered in a in the river outside of Okamogi. The men, who were all friends, had been shot and dismembered. A person of interest, Joe Kennedy, was arrested in Florida after being found in a stolen car. At this moment, we don't know what happened or why it happened. All we know is that these four men were gruesomely murdered. Here's the thing about Okmoki. It's a small town with some drug and property crime, but it's not a hotbed for violent crime. I used to go camping there when I was a kid, and I've driven um, through there a few times since then, and I have never felt the need to lock my car door at one of the few stoplights in town. This is really, really strange for Okmoki. And everyone wants to know why their little town made the national news. So that does it for this episode, true crime and history fans. I have a special episode coming at you before Halloween. And I have had, (laughs) I have had a blast researching it for you. Until then, carve your pumpkins, buy your candy, watch a little Jason, Freddy, or Michael... And do me a favor, take care of yourselves, and take care of each other. Bye.